Kathy and I have been at a couple of funerals in the last few months. Another just Friday uh, with relatives, men uh, who didn't live out there three score and and ten died much younger than that. And I was struck again Friday. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, "It's better to be in the house of mourning than in the house of feasting." or the party scene, because in the house of mourning you're reminded of your own end. And so it's one of those calls where you take stock again. And it was interesting in the testimonies that came up about both of my relatives, how consistent it was in both cases that both of them had qualities that were unique to them somewhat, by which they were known very consistently by others around them. You go to a funeral and you take stock of your own life. You know, you look at your own life and you say, Lord, where am I at? Am I doing the things you've called me to do? Do I need to make changes? You know, we're also approaching the end of a year. Typically, most of us, either in December or January, are taking stock again because as that calendar changes, we're asking those similar kinds of questions. What did we gain this last year? You know, what were the successes? What were the failures? What do we need to do next year that we didn't accomplish this year? You know, putting, trying to put our life in some of the big scope of things, God's things. What does God think of my life right now? What have I accomplished? What do I need to accomplish in the coming year? We're going to be trying to answer some of those questions this morning in a teaching with a title called Don't Waste Your Life. And this is not original to me, but is the title of one of the many, many books put out by John Piper. Uh, Piper is arguably one of the most important pastor-teachers in our generation. Whether you think of a guy who's had an impact in his own local church, he served at Bethlehem Baptist in Minneapolis for, I think, around 30 years. The impact that church has had, not only within their own two campuses now, but the church plants that have come out in part through Piper. He's the author of literally dozens of books. He's one of the key speakers and sort of agitators, if you will, in what's called the new Calvinism now. He has helped inspire a generation of youth, and that's not my age, but a generation or two uh, under me, through the conferences he's spoken at as well. It would be hard to overestimate the impact he's had on this generation and on generations to come. And yet there was a time when Piper was in college and he was determined to be a physician, not a preacher. His father was an itinerant church planter and preacher. But Piper, when he was in college at Wheaton, thought, and his plan for his life was to be a physician. And God changed all that in the fall of 1966. And this is in part what he writes in his book, Don't Waste Your Life. He says, in May, I had felt a joyful confidence that my life would be most useful as a medical doctor. I love biology. I love the idea of healing people. I love knowing at least what I was doing in college. So I quickly took general chemistry in summer school so I could catch up and take organic chemistry that fall. Now with mono, mononucleosis, he was laid up and sick. I'd missed three weeks of organic chemistry. There was no catching up. But even more important, Harold John Ockenga, then the pastor of Park Street Church in Boston, was preaching in chapel each morning during the spiritual emphasis week. 
I was listening on WETN, the college radio station. Never had I heard the exposition of the Scriptures like this. Suddenly, all the glorious reality centered for me on the Word of God. I lay there feeling as if I had awakened from a dream and knew now that I was awake what I was to do. From that moment on, I have never doubted that my calling in life is to be a minister of the Word of God. Now, Piper's a sharp guy. He's got a fine intellect, a keen mind, and I have absolutely no doubt that he would have made a great physician. That if he chose to pursue that, and if that was his sense of God's call, he would have made a great doctor in helping to heal people's bodies. But I would argue that Piper in God's economy would have wasted his life as a physician because God had called him not to heal bodies, but to help heal souls and spirits and minds. His life would have been productive. And for you and I, we can live moral lives and we can waste our life. And we can live what are called good lives and successful lives in the eyes of others. And we can waste our life. And if you and I find ourselves spending our lives, the time that is our lives, on lesser goals and arenas than God has carved out for us, either absolutely morally or simply because it's His call for us specifically, we will have wasted our life. It's important to have a sense of God's call for us, one, and also sort of the theater or the arena in which we understand our will and God's wills are the same. Paul wrote in Philippians 1, 9 and 10, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. Guys, I am so convinced that for many of us as Christians, we waste our lives because we don't differentiate the good from the excellent. We're living good lives, we're living moral lives, but we're not living excellent lives because we're not discerning the excellent from the good. And so we have so many options and so many ways we can spend our lives, so many good options, that we're wasting our lives on the good, not holding out for the best, or what Paul calls the excellent. We're going to look at a means this morning to approve the excellent. And the lens we're going to use is a passage out of Ephesians. This is Ephesians 5, 15 through 18. If you've got a study sheet, it's included there. And this is the ESV. But taking stock, looking at our life, Lord, how do I approve the excellent? How do I discern Your will for my life? How do I not waste my life? How at the end of my life, be it short or long, that I have lived such that I can say, Lord, everything you gave me to do, I did. So that you can look down and say, well done. Good job. You've accomplished what I had set aside for you. So one of the ways we can do that is in this short passage in Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 18. In this epistle, by the way, the first three chapters are theology and the last three chapters are practice, praxis. Paul 
tells us how to put into play the things he told us in the first three chapters. So here he says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and don't get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. We're going to pull this passage apart phrase by phrase. Hopefully this isn't overwhelming, but I think it's great. It's very helpful for me to say this is a way to assess my life, to take stock and inventory. There at verse 15, he says, careful how you walk. And careful there means circumspectly, thoughtfully. Circumspect has the the thought that I will give an account to someone else. And so it means to do it as I ought to do as I'll give an account for, so that, so that ultimately for us, so that God says that's the way I want it done. Circumspectly, Paul says, thoughtfully. And then walking is just a euphemism for life. So Paul calls us to live life where we go, who we meet with, the things we do, the things we choose not to do, to be based on this circumspect view of life, in which we're living and making choices in a way that God ultimately can approve. We're living circumspect lives. At verse 16, he says, making the best use of the time. Now, when he says best use, he implies that we can make better or worse use of our time. So he says here, make the best use of the time. And sometimes, depending on the translation you have, yours might say redeeming the time, which is a great translation because the Greek here means to buy up or to buy back or to buy out of, to redeem. Great word for this thought. To redeem, to buy up, to buy back the time. So for Paul, life is seen as a process of looking over the options that are before us and making the best purchases with that time, time being the currency of these transactions. Time is the coinage that we're spending on our choices. And if you think about it, time is absolutely the most valuable commodity any of us have. Once time is spent, you can never get it back. It's a currency that we have once in our hand, it's spent and it's gone forever. And it doesn't matter if you're a king or a pauper. We're all giving the same, same amount of value, which is each moment of our life. So, the easiest way to waste our life is to waste our time. It's spent. It's gone forever. It never comes back. The easiest way to waste our life is to waste our time. So, Paul says... Redeem the time. Look at life as a series of purchase options. If you're a garage sailor or you're someone who delights in good deals, Paul's saying look for the best deal. Don't don't sell cheap. Don't buy something that's not a good purchase. Be thoughtful in the purchases that are bought with the coin that is your time. The time of your life. 
When I was a young man in my teens and early 20s, my dad had taped on his wall a, a little prose here that I'll read, and it so impressed me at the time, I went to the library, no copiers in the house in those days, and made a copy of it, and I taped it up on my wall in my bedroom because it made such an impact on me. This is called For a Day of My Life, and this is attributed to Samuel Pugh. You'll actually find this attributed to other people also online, one being a football coach. This was the prayer before the game. He wrote, this is the beginning of a new day. God has given me this day to use as I will. I can waste it or use it for good, but what I do today is important because I'm exchanging a day of my life for it. When tomorrow comes, this day will be gone forever, leaving behind in its place something that I have traded for it. I want it to be gain and not loss, good and not evil, success and not failure, in order that I shall not regret the price that I have paid for today. I love that phrase. That I don't regret the price I paid for today. It's here once and it's gone forever. I can spend my time on lots and lots of things. And you know here, all of us, we have different hobbies, we have different pursuits and different interests. And by the way, please don't understand me saying today that life is all serious, that it's all work. I'm definitely not saying that. You know, God's made us for recreation. All of us need breaks where we do things that are simply fun and they're encouraging and they build us up. This is not a word that says life is all serious. But we can be serious about our play and about our recreation in a healthy, good way. But all of us are buying up things every day. And for so many of us, so often, what we're buying up, they're just trinkets instead of treasures. We're spending that coin, those moments of each day, but we're not getting much for it. Because we're not working to approve the excellent things instead of the things that are just okay. You know, many of us here, I bet most of us here, feel like life is very busy. And it's easy for us to get our lives very busy. And, you know, we, we try and assess what we're doing. And, and sometimes it's hard to remember because we've got so much going on. A busy life does not mean it's a non-wasted life. It's possible to be super busy and live a very wasted life. Paul says, buy up the time. Buy it up with the best. Be careful what you're spending your life on. He says there in verse 16, because the days are evil. In other words, be careful about your purchases because the days are evil. And the word there means ponderous work, toilsome, bad, troubled, difficult. You know, on a good day, if we go and do something we love to do, we hunt or we take in a good movie or we come out of a restaurant with a satisfying meal or we see a great sunrise or sunset, you know, in those moments, I think of the song, uh, It's a Wonderful World. You know, it's going through my mind. Man, life just seems so good. And, and it is. And it is. You know, and we still have so much of the goodness of God reflected in this world that He's made. And in the common graces, the goodness that He still pours out on all of humanity every day, that in those times when we say, ah, oh, it's great. 
Life is great. Well, well, it is. I love the way uh, Charles Manley Hopkins said it in the first line of one of his poems from the late 1800s. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. Isn't that true? You know, in all of creation, the natural world around us is supposed to give us a pause and a sense of awe. All of that is good. But Paul here says the days are evil. The times are evil. And the world we live in spiritually is evil. And that's what he's talking about. You know, in Peter's speech, in his call to the Jews on the day of Pentecost to embrace Christ as Messiah, the one that had been crucified just 40, 50 days earlier, do you remember part of what he said was this, be saved from this corrupt, some translations say wicked, be saved from this corrupt, wicked, twisted age and time. Peter got it that the Lord of glory, Christ Himself, the second person of the Trinity, had come from heaven to earth and had been crucified for His effort. The God of all goodness and glory was rejected and crucified by the world He came to save. This is indeed a wicked, wicked world. 1 John 5.19, John the Apostle says, we know that we are from God. John's there contrasting those who follow Christ with those who don't. We know we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. If you remember in Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, Satan offered Him the kingdoms of this earth because they were His to give. You know, the Scripture's clear that sovereignly God is over all things, causing and allowing all things. That must be the case because He's omnipotent. But it's also clear that Satan is called the God, the ruler of this world. So the world, the cosmos, the spiritual arena in which we live is not a good, wonderful world. It's a wicked, evil, death-filled place. We, uh, Kathy and I happened to be at a conference in Minneapolis years ago hearing John Piper, among other people, speak. And this was my first trip to Minneapolis, and it's a lovely city. And the river goes right through it, and we'd had a nice lunch on the river walk, and we'd been window shopping. It was just a really pleasant time. Come back to the conference, downtown Minneapolis at the conference, the convention center there, Piper's preaching. And as he does, in reference to Minneapolis, he says, this wicked, wicked city. And I'm thinking, John, lighten up. I just had a nice lunch. It's a lovely city, you know. But his point was the Apostle's point. The world, the spiritual world we occupy, it's wicked and it's evil. And because of that, Paul says, be careful how you buy up and what you buy up with your time because this age, this cosmos, this spiritual world we live in, it's wicked and it's evil. And we've got to be careful. We've got to be circumspect. Or otherwise, we simply fall in with the wickedness of the world around us. There are many, many good things for us to do in this world. God is so good. And though this is a wicked system within which we live spiritually, there's still so much of the goodness of God 
that we enjoy that. And we enjoy that with other people who are not yet in Christ's kingdom because of God's goodness. But friends, this world system, this spiritual arena in which our life is lived out, ultimately under the goodness and the sovereignty of God, it's a wicked, wicked place. That's the apostles and Christ's assessment. At verse 17, he says, Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In other words, the days are evil. You live in a wicked, evil, dangerous world, so don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, foolish here just means to not think. To not think. It's easy to be foolish. You just let the little gray cells stay in neutral. You just don't think. You just don't engage our mind. I think Ravi Zacharias has a radio ministry called Let My People Think. I'm a fan of hard-headed thinking and, and prayer and planning. Because without it, we just default to some lesser good. Redeem the time. The days are evil. Don't be foolish. Engage your mind. We've got about, think about the things we're doing and what we're buying up with the coin of our life. Be hard-headed. And he says, don't be foolish, but understand. And understand means to put the pieces together. If you think of life and the things that face us like a jigsaw puzzle, to be understanding is to see how these pieces interlock and how one thing affects another. So don't let your mind be disengaged but think, and as you think, see how one thing fits with another. We've got a lot of young adults in our midst in this church, high school and college age. Kids, this is a time, young adults, this is a time when as much as ever, you're tempted to make decisions that will not turn out for your best. And this is a time that is so pregnant with potential on one side, and yet fraught with danger on the other. Because the decisions you make now will make you next year and ten years down the road. So the friends you choose, and the school you go to, and the jobs you take or refuse, all of those decisions you're making now, they end up making you. And you can't afford not to be prayerfully thoughtful now and to ask yourself where will that school likely take me and where will the friends I'm hanging out where will that likely take me to put one thing with another and see how they fit together and where does that take me where will my life be next year or five or ten years from now based on the decisions I'm making now we can't foretell the future but we're supposed to be hard-headed in our thinking, putting one thing with another, understanding, so that we can know what the will of God is. It almost goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. For us to know what the will of God is, we have to know what God has said. Guys, again, if we're not living in the Scriptures, we don't know what the will of the Lord is. God has expressed His will. It's in the pages of the Bible. Verse 18, he says, don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Now there's a good old-fashioned English word, and that's out of the ESV. I was a little surprised. Other translations say 
that is reckless action, the Holman says. If you've got a King James, if you're old school, that is excess. A New American Standard, my favorite translation of this word, that is dissipation. Drunkenness is dissipation. And the, the Greek word there is asiatia. And it just means not saved. Not saved. So imagine your life like a pitcher of water and it gets poured out little by little. You know, we could take that water and we could make a plant flourish or we could have a cold drink or whatever. Paul says when you get drunk, you just pour that water out on the ground and it's not saved. It's not productive. It's wasted and it's gone forever and you can never buy it back. This not only has to do with alcohol. You know we are a culture that abuses substances all over the place. We abuse alcohol. We abuse drugs, legal and illegal. And you know those mind-altering drugs... We lose our senses. We lose our ability to discriminate. We lose our ability to weigh a thing and say, this is the excellent. And Paul says when we do that, we're not gaining life no matter what the pleasure of the moment feels like. We're actually losing life. It's wasted. You want to live a life wasted? Drunkenness and drug abuse. Substance abuse. It's just poured out. And it's gone. Now the Scriptures do not teach that Christians can't and not even necessarily shouldn't use alcohol or enjoy alcohol. If you look through the Bible, Old and New Testament, you'll see that in that culture, alcohol was a way of life. And I don't mean abuse. I mean use. It's celebrated. It's part of celebrations, wedding ceremonies and others in Scripture. So if you use alcohol, Paul here doesn't say don't, he says clearly, don't be drunk. And you know in the Scripture, if we're given an admonition for a certain direction, we want to err towards the command or the prohibition. Do you know what I mean? If the Scripture says don't get drunk, I don't want to go up to the line and say I didn't get drunk. I want to avoid the line. I want to err in the direction of the command. So Paul says, when we are abusing substances, it's just like pouring our life out. It's just wasted and it's gone. Because we have to be hard-headed. See, if we're not thinking, if our mind's not engaged, we can't fulfill this command. So we've got to be sober-minded, the Scripture says elsewhere. Leaders of the church can't be characterized by abusing alcohol. And I love 1 Corinthians, I think it's 10... 31, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. What is it we're doing? That's the goal. Do it all to the glory of God. Verse 18, last in this passage, Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. Uh, Pleroma, I think, is the Greek here. And it means to be filled to the top. Topped up. Like a gas tank that's full. You can't put anything else in it. Be filled with the Spirit. The way not to waste our life to be filled with the Spirit. I love this in Ephesians also. I'll just point out, you can look at this later. God's will for us, as those who have trusted Him, is that He 
fills, he fills our lives up. So in Ephesians 3, when Paul is praying, he prays that we will be filled up to the fullness of God, with the fullness of God, in his prayer, Ephesians 3. You go one chapter over to Ephesians 4, and he's talking about the gifts in the church, sort of the foundational gifts of of teaching and evangelism. And he says the fruit of those gifts is meant to be that we will be filled up with the fullness of Christ. And then here in chapter 5, he says we're to be filled up with the Spirit. You've got three chapters in which each one of the members of the Godhead is said to be filling us up. Guys, God wants to fill us up. He wants us to be so filled with Him and His goodness and the riches of His glory and His grace that nothing else is appetizing. We don't have to worry about lesser things and bad choices because we're so filled with God Himself that we value what He values. We hate what He hates. We're engaging the gray cells. We're thinking about God's things because we're filled up with Him. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. All three here in Ephesians. One after another in each chapter. Now, this is a command. To be filled with the Spirit is a command. That means we're able to do this. I could ask myself any day, am I obedient to God's command to be filled with the Spirit? Now, if you want to know if you're filled with the Spirit, these next three verses, 19 through 21, they tell you how you can know if you're filled with the Spirit. Because this is a description of a God-filled, Christ-filled, Spirit-filled life. There in Ephesians 5, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. A Spirit-filled life means my mind, my heart, the words of my mouth, and the songs in my head are about Christ and His things. That's a Spirit-filled life. I'm filled with the Spirit when I'm thankful to God no matter what's going on in my life. Not for bad things that enter my life. I'm still thankful to God with the lens, it says, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. I've got Christ. We had a great conversation at the funeral here Friday. I think it was my sister who was saying another conversation with someone. It didn't matter what happened. In life, if I have Christ, I've got enough. Well, that's the thought here. No matter what life brings us, whatever hardships we endure, we can give thanks because we have Christ. That's the Spirit-filled life. And I'm filled with the Spirit when I humble myself in submission to those around me in the variety of ways each of those relationships calls for. As you follow this through in Ephesians 5 and into Ephesians 6, you see Paul quantifying each of those relationships. Husbands and wives, children and parents, slaves and masters. He, he prints it all out there, this life of appropriate submission and humility. So if you want to know, am I walking with the Spirit? Am I filled with the Spirit and the Son and the Father? Just ask yourself, what's going through my mind? Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? Humility towards those around me? Thankfulness? If those aren't going on, I'm not, by definition, by Paul's definition, I'm not filled with the Spirit. I'm not living the not-wasted life God wants me to live. So it's a great acid test. 
Great acid test. I want to wind through some uh, quickly, briefly, just some areas of application. You've got these on your study sheet. Ephesians 5, a lens to bring into focus the variety, the endless variety of, of areas of our life in which we say, Lord, am I living this to your glory? Am I filled up here? Wasting our life with mere knowledge versus wisdom. You know, we live in not only the technological age, but the age of information. Guys, there's nothing remotely like the age we live in in which the availability of knowledge is like it is today. I love my cell phone. I love my browser. And if I hear a word or if I hear something or I can check the Greek text on my phone in an instant, it's ridiculous. You know, Daniel 12 said in the end, knowledge would increase. It's crazy. We live in the age of knowledge. But guess what? Knowledge is not wisdom. Wisdom includes knowledge, but knowledge is not reducible. Excuse me, wisdom is not reducible to knowledge. If we know all the right blogs, if we can quote all the news services, if we can win Jeopardy, that in and of itself means absolutely nothing about embracing and having and living out of God's wisdom. You know, the wisest man in the world. One of the people who were before Jesus, from whom Jesus came, you know, King Solomon said, get wisdom. Wisdom is the thing. Get knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God's Word is wisdom. So don't trade, don't waste your life, don't waste our lives by trading mere Knowledge, facts, and data for wisdom. Get wisdom. And wisdom is to be found in the Scriptures. In fact, I love Colossians 2. You know, Colossians 3 says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. You know, let the Christ's Word fill you up. Colossians 2 says, in Him, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. Don't trade mere facts and knowledge for wisdom. Don't waste your life in mere knowledge. Don't waste your life with popularity versus fellowship. This is arguably the shallowest age in the history of the world we live in. The shallowest. Now, I knock Facebook regularly, and I'm going to again in a minute. But let me just say something. Uh, Facebook is technology. It's, it's amoral. It's neither good nor bad. It's just a way to do something. And if you use Facebook because it's a great way to disseminate knowledge or information to your friends and family, that's a valuable tool and you use that, that's a great thing. But guys, it's a huge disservice to call an electronic acknowledgement online a friend. It's a devaluation of the term. It's like gay for homosexual. It's not. Gay is not, homosexuality is not gay. And a friend is not an electronic acknowledgement by someone else that's never met me. And in our day and our age, what we're trading, what we're wasting our lives on, is popularity by numbers. We know lots of people a tiny little bit. We're called to, in Christian fellowship, we're called to know fewer people deeply. So we're wasting our life because we're spending it on 
data online in friendship instead of what Christ calls us to, which is fellowship. Ask yourself this question. The people that have impacted you the most in your life or whom you have had the greatest impact in life, were they online or were they face-to-face? Probably for most of us, they're face-to-face. You and I cannot obey the call in Scripture to love one another, serve one another, admonish one another, pray for one another, encourage one another, serve one another, humble ourselves to one another. You can't do that online. That's face-to-face. We're talking about home groups this morning. We don't talk about this a lot as a church. You know, in part, it's a recognition, frankly, of how busy lives are you know how hard it is to get people in a home group? It's crazy. You know why? Scheduling. Because we've all got a million things every week. And you tell people it's important to be in fellowship with other Christians in a home group regularly, just as Larry was talking about earlier, so you can love one another, so you can actually get to know another human being in the church more than a face on Sunday morning. It's ridiculously difficult. But it's what we're called to. We're wasting our lives on friendships instead of fellowship. We're called to fellowship. We're wasting our life through activity versus purpose. We have so many options. Again, this is part of the difficulty of of not wasting our life. There are so many options. No matter what you think of for us in the West, in this day and time, we have options in everything. Tons of options. Options are the difficulty. What do I do with so many options? Related to that, we are tempted to substitute mere activity for purpose. Just a couple of examples. A TV and the internet, again, they're just tools, right? So I use my TV and I watch some news and I, use the, I live on my computer at home, on my laptop. Word processing and email and, and my Bible studies, they're all online. They're tools. But isn't it easy to waste your time sitting in front of the television? And you know, one of my gripes with TV, it's not that it's evil, though there are certainly evil elements to it. It's banal. It doesn't rise to the height of evil. It's just banal. It's just base. We've reduced television watching to someone else's dirty laundry. Who can be embarrassed and how can we embarrass someone? It's ridiculous. It's just banal. Or online, if we're surfing the net, the web, you know, you can surf the web for hours and then at the end of it, you're like, what did I do? I just spent hours of my life online. What did I buy up? What did I get? But the time is spent, it's gone. It was activity, but was there purpose? Was it a good trade? Another one, sports, arguably our national religion. I mean, absolutely. You know, we worship at the altar of sports in this country. We sacrifice our children on the altar of sports in this country. And again, I don't say this as a guy who's opposed to sports per se. I grew up, I was in athletics in every season. All my life growing up, I had a great time. And you know, just like internet and just like television, sports have a positive value. Uh, Physical health, camaraderie, teamwork. I mean, there's great lessons that you can learn through interaction in sports as adults or as kids. But but are we using those in a way that's actually ultimately beneficial? 
You know, is 10 years of junior league soccer, does that really help my child in the kingdom of God? You know, when I'm not at church because I'm at little league events on Sunday morning, is that really a good trade? And what am I communicating to my kids if I say, the fellowship of the saints and the worship of God takes second place to my sporting events or my other hobbies? What am I really saying? Am I really buying up the time? Or am I wasting my life? And last, on finances, trinkets versus investments. Again, so much that we can buy. So many places to take our money. So many people willing to take it from us and for us. You know, what are we doing with our financial investments? Are we redeeming the time in them? Are we buying bigger and better? Shinier and newer? Longer vacations? Are we investing? Do we have savings? That's a biblical thing. Just have savings for emergencies. Are we being generous, investing in the lives of others? Are we using those finances in a way that God says, that reflects my mind and my purposes? Are we wasting our financial investments or are we redeeming them? Piper wrote this to wind down here in his book also. He said, we waste our lives when we do not pray and think and dream and plan and work toward magnifying God in all spheres of life. God created us for this, to live our lives in a way that makes Him look more like the greatness and the beauty and the infinite worth that He really is. And that is the excellent way Paul talks about in Philippians 1. And that is a life not wasted, Ephesians 5. That is a life bought back, bought up, and redeemed. Bottom line that we're doing all for the glory of God. Father, help us to have uh, done with lesser things and lesser ways. God, we're drowning in mediocrity. Lord, we're filling our lives with the good and leaving the excellent and the best on the shelves. Would You help us, Lord, be filled up with the fullness of the Father and the Son and the Spirit? Would You help us to approve those things that are excellent, Lord? Would You help us to use the coin that is the time of our life so that we can look back on a life short or long and say that was a life not wasted. That was a life lived to the glory of God. Lord Jesus, be honored in our lives and in our worship now. Amen.